This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Today I'm going to break down another portion of The Half Has Never Been Told as part of my one-person book club. (laughs) And if you haven't gotten a book, please go get it. I'm not going to read every single chapter. Today I'm going to focus on the chapter entitled Left Hand because it's in this chapter where we first meet Patsy, the woman that I often talk about from 12 Years a Slave, the book by Samuel Northrup. Early on in the chapter, Edward Baptist talks about torture. He talks about the whip and how the whip was mightier than the machine, that the whip was able to exact more cotton from enslaved people than any machine that was developed. Enslaved people were picking more cotton than any cotton gin could ever do, and it was directly as a result of the whip. So he writes, The whip, ten feet of plaited cowhide dangling from a weighted handle, was, Ball realized, different from all other whips that I've ever seen. The impression it made would never leave him. Many other migrants reported the same feeling of shocked discovery. In Virginia and Maryland, White people used cat-o'-nine-tails, short leather whips with multiple thongs. These were dangerous weapons, and Chesapeake enslavers were creative in developing a repertoire of torture to force people to do what they wanted. But this southwestern whip was far worse. In expert hands, it ripped open the air with a sonic boom, tearing gashes through skin and flesh. As the overseer beat Lydia, she screamed and writhed. Her flesh shook. Blood rolled off her back and percolated into the packed, dark soil of the yard. Those who had seen and experienced torture in both the southeastern and southwestern regions universally insisted that it was worse on the southwestern planters. Under the whip, people could not speak in sentences or think coherently. They danced, trembled, babbled, lost control of their bodies. Talking to the rest of the white world, enslavers downplayed the damage inflicted by the overseer's whip. Sure, it might etch a deep gash in the skin of his victims, make them tremble and dance, enslavers would say, but it did not disable them. Whites were open with those whom they beat about the whip's purpose. Its purpose, its point, was the way it asserted dominance so educationally that the enslaved would abandon hope of successful resistance to the pushing system's demands. Henry Bibb writes, their plan of getting quantities of cotton is to extort it by the lash. We'll read it again. Their plan of getting quantities of cotton is to extort it by the lash. Extort it by the lash. And Edward Baptist goes on to write about how this was done. And he gives several examples in the book. And then we get to Patsy. Because what Edward Baptist writes in the left hand, and the half has never been told, is really uh, the anatomy of how torture created evolution within a generation, and he literally writes this. He writes, overseers, however, were selected for their hardness. If they caught enslaved people trying to short the scales on their daily cotton debt, the punishment was severe. Surveillance and physical intimidation in the fields also made it difficult for pickers to cheat the scale by loading in field rocks or to run away before weighing time. Sometimes fast workers tried to help slower ones by putting cotton in their baskets or taking their rows for a while. But enslavers usually made rules against cooperation and enforced them. I'm gonna pause right there. There was a built-in in in the slave fields, in the cotton fields, a built-in 
um, detriment or built-in deterrence for cooperation and working together, which was natural to these people to work together. But if you were caught working with somebody or helping somebody, you were beaten mercilessly. Imagine what that must be over a 200-year period. What did that ingrain in the minds and the psyches of people? I'm going to continue. Instead, as minimums increased for all over time, entrepreneurs and exploiters forced individual enslaved people to marshal the forces of their own creativity against their own long-term health and independence and even against each other. I'm going to read that again. As minimums increased, so... Every day, you had to pick more than you picked the day before. <laughs> so if you started at four or 500 pounds of cotton, the next day you would have to pick more. And that was the benchmark for everybody. So if there was somebody, like I'm going to talk about in a second, Patsy, who could pick 400, 500 pounds of cotton a day, and you could only really pick 300, you were in a world of hurt. And if Patsy decided to slow down so that everyone else could catch up, she was in a world of hurt. So what do you do? Who do you choose? Who do you choose? This system forced people to conspire against one another and even themselves. How awful and evil is that? So as minimums increase for all over time, entrepreneurs, I hate that word, should call them torturers and tormentors, entrepreneurs and exploiters forced individual enslaved people to marshal the forces of their own creativity against their own long-term health and independence, and even against each other. So fearing, so fearing punishment or even death, minds scrambled to come up with ways to speed hands. And the dramatic increase over time in the quantity picked reveals that somehow they succeeded. Minds scrambled to come up with ways to speed hands. We know the brain is the, is the computer that sends messages to every part of our body to do what it's doing. Imagine that your very life, every single day is on the line. Your brain is forced now to figure out how can we use these hands more effectively. And somehow, somehow, a lot of enslaved people were able to do that. But I want to point out the word here, because I got into a discussion, which you may see on YouTube, about creativity of somebody's culture, I said, that wasn't as creative as ours. And what I was really talking about, even though I couldn't articulate it at the time, creativity is not necessarily found in music and art and all these other things. Creativity is the ability to be nimble and shift and create something out of nothing. Creativity is literally creating something out of nothing. And for enslaved people, they were creating ways to pick cotton that didn't exist before. That was their own ingenuity. That's a level of creativity that was forced out of them, that was tortured out of them. And that was passed along in the DNA. So if you're listening to my voice right now, you're a descendant of a person that was picking cotton. I'm raising my hand because I am a descendant of someone who was picking cotton within you. And if you haven't tapped into it, and I'm tapping into mine every chance I get, within you is the ability to create unseen, unheard of things. And if you aren't doing it, get busy because you can he goes on to write Edward Baptist in The Half Has Never Been Told. He said, um, but how? Look at enslavers' language. It assumed that some human beings could be reduced to appendages of others, 
yet it also mirrored the words that formerly enslaved people used to describe the experience of picking cotton. For they remembered that to pick quickly enough to turn cotton entrepreneurs' calculations about profit into reality, one had to disembody oneself. To create a reality that didn't exist, these enslaved people, this is Karen talking right now, these enslaved people had to separate themselves from their very body. Picking all day long, Edward writes, Edward, Dr. Baptist, let me call him uh, by his appropriate name, Dr. Baptist writes, picking all day long until late at night, even by candlelight, that they, that they had to dis, dissociate their minds from pain that racked stooping backs, from blood running down pricked fingertips, from hands that gnarled into claws over a few short years, from thirst, hunger, blurred vision, and anxiety about the whip behind and before them. One had to separate mind from hand to become for a time little more than a hand or two hands, like novice picker Solomon Northrup's neighbor, Patsy, Solomon Northrup, who wrote 12 Years a Slave, it was made into a movie starring Brad Pitt and uh, Chiwetel, Ejiofor, and Lupita Nyong'o, uh, who played Patsy. While Northup lurched down his row, the long cumbersome sack, making havoc with cotton branches and groping single cotton bowls with both hands, Patsy worked both sides of her row in perpetual motion, right and left. She reached with one hand, dropped cotton in the bag hanging from her neck with the other. Lightning quick motion was in her fingers as no other fingers possessed. Northup later wrote, she moved like a dancer in an unconscious rhythm though of displacement rather than of pleasure. Patsy's hands, both of them, right and left, each did their own thinking, like those of a pianist. For most of the laborers, however, the left hand was a problem. Symmetry can be beautiful to witness. In tests, people seem consistently attracted to more symmetrical faces and bodies. Side note, that's Fibonacci. But in fact, human beings are in crucial ways asymmetrical. Nine out of 10 of us prefer to use the right hand for most tasks. Virtually all of us prefer one hand over another. And we now know that the left side of the brain controls the right hand and vice versa. The left side of the brain is more heavily involved in analytical, detailed, specific processes and thoughts. These include language and they also include skilled work with the hands. The right hand, the right side of the brain, excuse me, is more responsible for global processes such as general perceptions of the world. Many believe it to be more artistic and more emotional. Of course, the reality is slightly more complex than a simple right-left spatial separation inside the brain. Nor is the nature of asymmetry always the same. In some left-handers, language faculties are primarily based in the right side of the brain rather than the left. But either way, different sections of the brain play specific and distinct roles, and specific parts of the brain are linked in different ways to our dominant and non-dominant hands. Right and left, right and left hand, right and left brain are neither equal nor interchangeable. Our hands are crucial elements of how we, wired, how we are wired to the world, and the brain, and the mind, and the self. So what happened to Patsy? She was able to separate and Patsy wasn't alone, apparently. There were a lot of enslaved people who were able to keep up. But they didn't keep up because they were just 
uh, ambidextrous. They were tortured into ambidexterity. Didn't just happen. Um, Edward Baptist writes, uh, to alienate one's hand and rewire them, to alienate one's hands and rewire them for someone else was torment. Enslaved people, however, discovered how to do it. They had no choice, so they watched and talked to one another. Learning from their speed, they created on their own new efficiencies that shortened, to, shortened the path from plant to sack and back in space and time. And above all, they shut down pathways in the brain so that the body could dance like a patsy, could become for a time the disembodied hand of enslaver's fantastic language. The whole effort left permanent scars. Years after she learned to pick cotton in Alabama in the 1850s, an elderly woman named Adeline still couldn't stand to watch clerks weighing the meat she bought at the grocery store. She said, because I remember so well that each day that the slaves were given a certain number of pounds to pick. When weighing up time come and you didn't have the number of pounds set aside, you may be sure that you was gonna be whipped. The threat of torture, Edward Baptist writes, drove enslaved people to inflict this creation and destruction on themselves. Torture walked right behind them, but neither their contemporaries then nor historians since have used torture to describe the violence applied by enslavers. And I'm gonna stop reading right there because you can get the book yourself and read it. Um, it's the chapter, Left Hand. Uh, but I wanna stop there because uh, every day I get up, just inherently I'm reminded that uh, I walk with my ancestors and people say this all the time. I'm here because somebody uh, died so that I can be here. But when I read this book and I think about what evolved in those slave on those slave cotton plantations throughout this country for 250 plus years, when I think about the torture that every day, can you imagine every day, you know, there's, there's places right now you don't want to go and your stomach drops just to think about it. Maybe for you, some of it, some of you, it's your job. <laughs> you know, when the thought of getting up in the morning, when the alarm clock goes off, your stomach drops because you're like, oh, I got to go into that damn job. And you know, I speak a lot about sovereignty and agency and figuring out ways to to get your money right so that you never are beholden to anyone. I will do as many speaking engagements and podcasts, and I will talk about this until I have no more breath, because freedom is what we're really talking about. And when I read about what my ancestors, your ancestors, some of you had to endure every single day without any option, the only option was death, and that they didn't run freely into death, some did, but most of them didn't, or we wouldn't be sitting here right now. Four million people were freed when, 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 when slavery ended. Four million people decided to get up every day under the threat of a cat and nine tail in some areas of the South worse than a cat and nine tail. That's what they beat Jesus with, a cat and nine tail. And there were worse things that they created because even torture evolved to make people work harder, not for themselves, not for themselves, but for a master. And that some of us are still putting ourselves in position to be mastered is not just an affront to the people that endured that, but it is a new slavery that I won't be a party to. And I won't let you be a party to because when you know better, you do better. So the challenge today, and, and the reason why I'm breaking down this book, 
Two reasons, first of all, white people need to be educated about the founding of this country and why we are gonna still talk about slavery. We're gonna keep talking about slavery and when reparations comes up, you know why. And it's not just about the black farmers, it goes way beyond that. This institution of slavery is the founding principle, the founding economy, the founding thought of America. It was birthed right along with the Declaration of Independence and we cannot separate the two. While Patsy can separate the hemispheres of her brains, her brain to be able to pick more cotton. This country cannot separate itself from the institution of slavery. So whether you came here in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, doesn't matter, you benefit from the system. So you're gonna need to learn this and spread the word. But the other reason why I'm doing the breakdown of the half has never been told is to inspire people who are descendants of enslaved people that you have, you have a responsibility to never go back to slavery. And that means every day that you get up and you're working for somebody, as I've said before, you're actually working for yourself and you go in with that mentality. I don't care what's happening because the goal has to be freedom. The goal has to be agency and self-sufficiency. The goal has to be to not be under anyone's yoke. And that means we can make better decisions and choices. Yes, we can build better communities because we are not enslaved and that's the goal here. So I hope that again, you've gotten something out of it and if you never read this book, you at least I've read some to you today. And till next time, I'm gonna keep doing this. Um, We'll see you. And follow me on Twitter at Karen Hunter. Please let me know what you think. Use the hashtag podcast if you have any questions about anything. On Sundays, I will pick a couple of questions and I will answer them. I thank you so much for your support. Till next time. Mm -hmm.